my hope is really that fiction, because it prompts us to really meditate on the experiences of, of individuals in a human way, in a more intimate way, just to, to give a face really to each other and to the experiences and to, and to recognize that in so many ways, there are these commonalities and these questions that are resonant. In Ping Chen's debut story collection, The Land of Big Numbers, China doesn't feel like a vast country of a billion people, but of a family, a young woman, a brother. The characters strive, pursue dreams, and struggle against an authoritarian government and societal expectations. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. On Real Fiction, we often explore the intersection of how real and imaginary forces fuel stories. The Land of Big Numbers is a book that hits that mark like a bullseye. The stories take inspiration from real life, with doses of magical realism, pulling from modern and ancient traditions. These fictional stories are crafted by a reporter with the Wall Street Journal who spent years working in China, writing about how ordinary citizens work and live. In these stories, surveillance, for example, is studied both as a tool of state to threaten and protect its people. Real Fiction is a production of Arlington Independent Media. Producers work hard to bring you compelling, thoughtful guests to foster community and global awareness. And through the magic of streaming, listeners can tune in on WERA.FM to hear broadcasts anywhere. I'll be back in a moment with Tay Ping Chin. My guest today is Ping Chen. Her debut story collection, Land of Big Numbers, was just released. Her fiction has been published in The New Yorker, Granta, Tin House, and The Atlantic. A reporter with The Wall Street Journal, she was previously a correspondent for that paper in Beijing and Hong Kong. Joining me from Philadelphia to discuss her work is Ping Chen. Ping, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you so much, Laurie. It's really a pleasure to be on. The stories in Land of Big Numbers, they're intimate, they're universal. It feels like being at the dinner table with someone in Beijing, Shanghai, all over China. And I'm really thrilled that you could join us today because your fiction takes a lot of inspiration from news headlines. And I just mentioned that you are a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. And so your literary work is at that at that intersection of real and fiction that I love to explore on this program. And what's remarkable is that the stories work together to paint a vivid picture of the world's most complex and populous country, which is China. And you give us a lens into the everyday life of normal Chinese citizens. Uh, What I didn't mention is that you grew up in Oakland, California. You You have lived and worked in China. I'm curious, is China something that you feel compelled to write about? Yeah. Well, the book is really 
you know, as you said, um, product of my life in Beijing, where I was based for a number of years as a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. And it was a place that, of course, my daily job was to try and document through headlines and news stories. And I loved that job. I, you know, I got to travel the country and just meet so many incredible people. But at the same time, I, I just, you know, I would bike home at the end of the day and coming home, I would just see around me a million more um, details and stories. Just, I felt anytime I stepped in my apartment, there were so many things that I wanted to capture and convey about this extraordinary place and moment that I was living through and just wanted, needed that vehicle, right? Um, beyond sort of the print journalism, which is of course something I love, but um, I think in so many ways, fiction just provides this broader canvas. You know, Lulu is an amazing story. It's it's the first story that appears in this collection. And some listeners may recall this story from its publication in The New Yorker. I think it was in 2019 when it was first published. And it really has everything. It has family tensions and expectations, sibling rivalry, censorship, the quest for truth. And the character in that story Lulu is, she's brilliant. Her parents expect greatness from her. She becomes a sort of online dissident, spreading stories of government abuse and uprisings. And my goodness, if this is something that reads just like a headline, but we get to go behind the scenes with this young woman's family as this unfolds. Can you tell us what inspired the story, Lulu? Absolutely. The story really, for me, came out of something that I wrestled with a lot while living in China, and something that's been on my mind too, since coming back to the States, and I think is true for many of us, just this question of what it means to live in a society where there, where you can be exposed to so much a sense of injustice and know that, in the case of China, so many horrific things are happening, uh, many committed by the state, and to feel powerless and to feel that sense of living cheek by jowl with people who have been facing the worst of the state. And at the same time, you yourself being quite comfortable. Mm. I think there's that dichotomy there that's true in the States and certainly true in China. And what I really wanted to explore in Lulu was this, the central question of these relationships, right? In the family that you see. So Lulu is the, the person who in many ways is the heroine of the story, of course, she's brave, she's brilliant, she's strong, and she's, she's, she becomes, as you say, an online dissident and um, really to, to the dismay of her family, um, throws away her bright future. And I, throughout my time in China, I would, in the course of my reporting, I would meet people just like Lulu, ordinary people who were taking these extraordinary acts and putting themselves at such risk and knowing full well the risks that their actions bore. And it staggered me every time. Mm -hmm. You would have these conversations and you would just think, my God, what is fueling you? How are you just, it was just extraordinary to see and behold. And at the same time too, I was so fascinated by, because I would also meet, of course, their families. And I would think of what it would be like to be living with and to love someone so who is putting themselves at such risk, right? And that right. twin sort of sense of admiration and horror and frustration that comes 
with seeing someone go through that and, and, and also putting her family through that in the case of Lulu, her own actions, of course, um, very much affect her family. And so, yeah, it's just that sense of duality and, and contradiction that comes with living in a place like China and the very human experience. I think of, of course, I mean, Lulu is an extraordinary character, but I think to me, what really drove the writing of the story in so many ways was just the desire to explore the character of her brother, who, you know, I, I think is someone that we we can all find fairly relatable. Oh, absolutely. And when I was preparing for my discussion with you taping, I was trying to catch up on some of the the news in China. It's been such a busy news cycle that sometimes a few headlines get lost. But um, the very end of December, there was a story uh, actually in the Wall Street Journal about the citizen journalist, uh, Zhang Zan, if I'm pronouncing that mm-hmm. right, I don't mm-hmm. know if you're if you're following that, but she is being highlighted as the first uh, citizen journalist who has been jailed um, for reporting the um, on the COVID crisis. And so, when you read that story, you see you see a bright young woman who is taking every risk, but we don't see the family struggle behind that. So that's one of the reasons I loved. I loved reading Lulu so much because we get those two pieces. I'm just curious if is that a story that you've been following? Yeah, so John John's case is obviously a really a really sad one, um, and and one obviously that happened, of course, after the writing of the story Lulu. But it's it's the sort of case that you saw so frequently in China, uh, sort of citizen journalists who would try and carve out their own space online to bring light to certain things. Um, that weren't being covered in state media and would face just incredibly heavy consequences. Just yeah. and many of them also quite young, right? And Lulu is quite young. The vision of what it's like to be young in China is just so fascinating. It it is something that we don't get a comprehensive picture of. So that's one of the the reasons that I love your story collection. And again, for listeners, I'm speaking with. Ping Chen. Her debut story collection is titled Land of Big Numbers. And there is another story that I um, wanted to ask you about. Um, and my goodness, we could do an hour just on this one story called uh, Hotline Girl. And um, again, this has been published. I think this one was published in O Magazine, That's if I'm right. not mistaken. Okay. So this story really, for me, turned the concept of surveillance, government su- surveillance on its head. You know, it's generally thought to be a negative thing and and perhaps it it is a negative thing, negative concept, but I did think find myself thinking about it a little bit differently after reading the story because the character in this in this piece faces her greatest threat not from the sensors on the lanyard that she's required to wear in this in the city where she lives, but from the abusive boyfriend who is stalking her. So we get this picture of this woman who is working for something called the Government Satisfaction Office. And I actually wanted to ask you about that too. I'm curious whether that is something that exists in some form or fashion. What did you want readers to consider about being young and the concept of freedom in China? Yeah, when you, when you consider surveillance and and how everyone is to a degree tracked. Yeah, so so that story. I mean, there are details in it that are more of sort of a funhouse mirror vision of Beijing, but many of them are 
are very true to life, including since you asked um, the detail at the government satisfaction <laughs> center where, where she works, that absolutely is something that exists um, in China with these. Is hotlines. it really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We're, okay. We're, I mean, obviously the precise workings of it, I was never able to get inside of one, but the concept so intrigued me. And, and there are indeed hotlines that you can call to make complaints as a citizen, as a citizen. Wow. And um, yeah, it just, I was so, so fascinated by that vision. And I mean, and so many of these stores sort of were outgrowths of little kernels like that, that I stumbled upon in my own life and reporting. But um, to answer your question, what I was trying to get at in the store, I mean, a lot of different things, but one of the things which you picked up on this question of surveillance, so often when you, when you speak with people about life in China, I mean, I think there's this vision of it being this really bleak, grim dark, oppressive place. And that doesn't correspond with the lived reality for the majority of its citizens. The main character in Hotline Girl is very much someone who, she grows up a free spirit in some areas, right? And she has her own dreams and ambitions. She wants to become a singer. She moves to the big city to try and achieve that dream and ends up working as a government bureaucrat and living in the city where, yes, you're your emotions are monitored and it's in many ways that sort of, it has those elements of a dystopian state where you really, you're, you're never um, beyond the gaze of the government. And at the same time, what I think you're picking up on and I hope comes through is this, this feeling that it really isn't, it, it becomes something that's so natural and it's something that really sits very easily upon our main character and something that she partakes in too as one of one of the arms of the government. Um, this kind of surveillance and it's kind of what seems objectively like quite um, an oppressive apparatus in many ways is something that almost goes unnoticed by her and she's much more consumed with the other sort of personal and emotional right. dramas of her life, of course. And so that, the story ends with her feeling free and, and celebrating that feeling of being young and free in the city. And the reader can see very well that she is in so many ways. And yet, of course, she also is not when you look at things from that broader perspective. And that dichotomy was something that really fascinated me about life in China. Well, it is fascinating. And as I was reading about the the lanyard that Bai wears in, in Beijing, um, she she mentions that one of the most popular um, kind of elements of wearing the lanyard is that you can go online and check how many steps that you have at the end of the day, which is very similar to what we're doing to ourselves every day, what we put our Fitbit watches on and our Apple watches. Later in the book, there is a piece called Shanghai Murmur. And a young woman in this story is working in a flower shop. She left a rural village in search of success and and a better life in the big city. And I love that she kind of just ambitious and something hit me quite profoundly. Um, a man with whom she'd had many interactions in this flower shop doesn't recognize her when she shows up at his door and she ends up feeling rather invisible. And I've had conversations with other guests on this program about how we tend to undervalue working class environments and the importance of seeing people. But I'd really like to know how that plays out in this story and really what it means for people who think they're going to seek a better life in the city, but end up feeling so unseen and invisible. Yeah. And that moment that you describe when when she shows up at this man's door, this man that she's known through her work at the shop and he's a customer and she's developed a crush on him and and he doesn't recognize her and oh it breaks my heart just thinking of it i that story to me 
get. I mean, Xiaolei is such, as you as you say, an ambitious character, and she's someone with such an ability to dream and and conjure up alternate realities for herself. And that same ability is what, of course, propels her from her home village to the big city of Shanghai. And that's where her dreams do stumble and run aground. And you start to see that these visions that she has of herself just don't line up with the realities of her adopted home. And in so many ways, she is invisible. And that, I think, is so much that when I when I said, oh, that's heartbreaking, you know, that, that moment that she has, I think it's something that, of course, is, is very true of people who work in jobs like chalets. I also think it's just more true broadly for people, no matter where you are in society or what country you live in, we, we all have moments when we aren't seen in the way that we see ourselves, in the way that we d- feel we deserve to be seen. And that, yeah, that, that heartbreak. Yeah. And also still, though, she is a character, I think, who is resilient. And, you know, at the end, I think you see her carrying on. You know, I want to ask you more broadly about um, what we're going through in this country and the United States and China are relating to each other. Some of the international relationships have deteriorated for the U.S. and specifically with China. I I know that you have colleagues at the Wall Street Journal and with other national newspapers who were dismissed from China last year. And, And obviously there's a there's a, an intense mistrust, but the fact is there there is some censorship on both sides, and I think that's what's remarkable about your, your stories. We we kind of see that some of the reality is blocked coming from from both the United States and China. What is your hope in the coming years for for our two countries, and what do you think about when you think about the power of fiction to reveal what a new story cannot achieve? It's a hard question. The countries right now are entangled in such deep ways and have such deep distrust, and it's hard to know how things will move forward ultimately under the new administration. I mean, my hope is is very much that through this book to try and help just open a window onto a country that can be so difficult to access and increasingly difficult to access, as you mentioned, of course, with my colleagues, as well as reported from many other major newspapers having been kicked out of the country. It's, it's, a, it's a hard place to have a window onto it and, and I think getting yeah. harder all the time. I think too, this moment is a time when so many of us are mediating the world through screens and at a distance from remove. And from the position in, in China, speaking with um, and interviewing young Chinese, I mean, it was, it was really striking to see how the U.S. in many ways, I mean, this is something I wrote about quite extensively, at one point was a place that was really idolized by many young Chinese and Mm -hmm. looked up to for its systems of governance. And in recent years, that that image has really changed among uh, many younger Chinese. And that sense of patriotism and nationalism that's been on the rise in China and, and the corresponding feeling almost of disillusionment with the states was something that was really striking to get to document. And so... Yeah, I mean, I think on both sides, as, as you mentioned, there's just there's a perception gap. And, and my hope is really that fiction, because it prompts us to really meditate on the experiences of, of individuals in a human way, in a more intimate way, just to, to give a face really to each other and to the experiences and to, and to recognize that in so many ways, there are these commonalities and these questions that are resonant. Yeah. And you just touched on something really fascinating. And it's true. We're viewing each other through screens. Um, what is your impression of the the availability of uh, most websites, 
pop culture websites, yeah. music websites. What what are young Chinese internet users mm -hmm. able to see in Europe or the United States? Well, it really is such a bifurcated internet at this point, and that that so much has been Xi's vision, right, is to create an internet within China that is walled off from the more threatening parts of the internet elsewhere. So, of course, sites like the Wall Street Journal, for example, have long been blocked and other sources of, of Western news. Something, though, that was really striking to me was, of course, many, many people in China, or some people, I should say, do know how to leap the firewall. And what I thought was so fascinating was many of the people that I interviewed with, um, interviewed or spoke with, would say that they did so not to read news that had been banned in China about controversial topics like Tibet or Taiwan or what have you, but actually they were just doing it to go on YouTube and look at videos of mm. fancy cars or, you know, just other sorts of forms of entertainment that they liked. It was nothing political. You know, um, I wanted to ask you about something rather specific. I've, I've just made one trip to China. It was uh, a while ago. What I found really intriguing about my interactions with young Chinese is that they wanted to know the they were fascinated by the price of everything. <laughs> they asked about, because mm -hmm. um, you mentioned cars a moment ago, they asked about the price of very specific car models and um, <laughs> devices. And they and then I could see the calculations going through their head. And it, you know, it was, and it was interesting for me too, because we would do price comparisons. Is that something specific that you have found in your... Uh, that was, I, I'm laughing just because that is such a trope in the conversation that comes off. I think it speaks just sort of more broadly in China. If, you know, I think people are just like so pragmatic and grounded in details often. And so the kinds of questions that I would get about life in America were often along the lines that you, that you mentioned. Um, there were just questions that were really basic and things like what time do people go to bed? Really sort of like funny, yes. very specific questions that were not any that I might think to ask about another country or place, but they're the sort of questions that do actually say a lot about a place. As you're walking through this, I'm also remembering that I, I remember getting a question repeatedly. How does a person get a job in the United yeah, States? Yeah, they're very nuts and bolts, right? Nuts and bolts. They wanted to know, um, is there an announcement? Mm -hmm. um, do you have to have an uncle that um, helps you get a position? Um, what are, you know, how do they match up your qualifications? What time do you get it? So there was a lot of really very specific, as you said, nuts and bolts questions. But what I what I was just so amazed by and was so enchanting was that they really wanted to know there was just such a, a desire to build a connection. And it's yeah. sometimes such a shame that we have those limitations and we can't do that as much as we should. Um, so when a book like this comes out, it gives us a window of some of the specific real life issues facing young people, I mean, young people in particular, which is a lot of what you focus on. As a working journalist, though, Taping, do you do you have any concerns about how this book will be viewed um, or received? Any concerns about uh, being able to return to China, having a work visa? I'm not in China at this point. Um, I, I will say, as, as a journalist in China, your, your first fears are, of course, always for your sources and the people that you're talking to. And as American reporters, and we always had the awareness that we're much more insulated um, from reprisal from the state. So there's that. As well, of course, as you mentioned before, many of my American colleagues have already been kicked out of the country. So at this right. point, I couldn't be there anyway, even if I, if I wanted to. So yeah, I mean, I, cer I certainly have concerns about my ability to further work and report in the country. 
you are putting a work of fiction into the world. What can you share about what you're working on next? I am currently working on a novel, um, which is about a pair of sisters who grew up and are estranged during jazz, the jazz age in Hawaii. And it's... Oh, wow. Yeah, it's still um, very much a work in progress. For my listeners, again, my, my guest today is... Ping Chen. She has a debut collection of stories titled Land of Big Numbers. And thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. Thank you. This has been so fun. You've been listening to Real Fiction on WERA 96.7 FM, Radio Arlington. All episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. You can find program updates on Twitter. The handle is at RealFicRad. You can also find us on our Facebook page. As always, please consider supporting community radio. Staff and producers love listener feedback and appreciate your financial support. Arlington Independent Media offers incredible online classes and media training. Take a look and get involved. Thank you for listening.